I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, Oak Grove. Why don't we take just a second and um, say hello to one another. Just greet somebody around you, take a few seconds here, and um, just say hi. We need to do that. Right there. <clears throat> More ball. More data. All right, family, let's do this. Order in the house. You people, you're out of control.
Oh, that's good. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on, on this time we have together in his word. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, to hear from you through your word. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Most of all, thank you for his great love for us and willing to suffer on our behalf and go to the cross and die for our sins. Father, we could never repay that debt. We can only humbly thank you and live for you. Father, as we look at your word, we just would ask that you to open our, our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us and that this service might be a tremendous blessing to those that have come and it'd be a tremendous blessing to you. We give you thanks in our dear Savior's name. Amen. Well, we, uh, we're continuing our study of Philippians, and Nathan read to us a passage there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 30, and it ends with this verse right here. Now, <clears throat> um, let me start by saying, you know, um, whenever you're doing public speaking, they say you've got to somehow build a relationship with your audience. Uh, so they understand, they can relate and all this. Well, it's also true that, you know, the Lord gives us different professions and different vo uh, vocations and things like that, that we have commonality with different people and we're able to touch hearts with those people we have things in common with. You know, with, within our body here, we're really an eclectic body. You know, there are some of us that are engaged as builders and contractors. There's some of us that are in the teaching profession. There's some of us that are in resource management in various forms. There's some of us that are in different types of trades. Um, but we're in those because God's given us unique gifts and abilities, but we're in those because we have the ability to relate to those. We can speak their language, okay? And um, Paul <clears throat> here is doing the same thing, and he does it throughout this letter. He was in Philippi, as we're going to look again in Acts chapter 16. He was there. He, he understood the people. He understood that Philippi was a unique city, and he addresses them in specific ways. And then in this letter, he comes back to experiences that he had that he can build a relationship to drive home the point of the gospel. And this is one of them. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we're going to see how that unpacks itself today and next week as we look at what happened to Paul there in Philippi. So if you would, turn back to Acts chapter 16. And we're actually building our study of Philippians around Paul's experiences in Philippi as given to us by Luke in chapter 16. Now, you'll recall if you're here last week, um, and if you weren't here, this would be helpful, or if you were here last week and were just a little slow, this might be helpful. Um, we started out <clears throat> by talking about Paul's second missionary trip, and that's when he went to Philippi. And he starts down here in Antioch. He works his way up this way. He gets Torres. He takes a boat over to Neapolis, and then he, from there he walks on up to Philippi right there. And so we looked really quickly last week at um, Neapolis. That's the seaport he came into. Now, if you notice that, there is not a lot of good farming ground around there. That's pretty rocky, scabby country. And so Neapolis was not a huge 
metropolitan area, if you will, during those days. So he, he takes the Via Aglantia up the Roman road all the way up and comes into the city of Philippi. <clears throat> and now it says something really important in uh, Acts chapter 16 about Philippi. And you can pick it up in, and we want to, in verse 12, 16, 12. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And it's, that little phrase there is really key for us to understand the message God has for us today. We talked last week about what a Roman colony is, and basically, like an American colony, we represented here in the New World what Great Britain was like. And it's the same for Philippi. Philippi represents Rome. It had all the customs, all the legal establishments, all the cultural aspects, all the religious aspects. If you went to Philippi, it was like you were going to Rome. And not every city had that. Okay, so this is a colony that represents the Roman Empire. This city does. You want to know what Rome looks like? Go to Philippi if you have the opportunity. <clears throat> now, it's interesting. We followed the trail last week of Paul that on the Sabbath, he went outside the gate to a riverside. This river that he probably went to was to the east of Philippi, just a little ways. And there he encountered a group of women having a prayer session and one of those that he encountered was Lydia. And we looked at Lydia's life a little bit, and we found out some things from Acts 16:14 uh, that we built upon that she was from the city of Thyatira, which is quite a ways away from Philippi. So she was not a native of Philippi, but she was there on business, and she was a merchant of purple fabric. And we learned last week that purple fabric comes from the area around Thyatira, the dye does, or it comes from a sea shell, which she probably did not have access to. But she's a merchant woman, and she is dealing, now again, this is a Roman colony, so it is a place where nobility lives. And purple garments were exceedingly expensive, worth their weight in gold. And so she is dealing with these Roman officials, if you will, that have the money to invest in something made out of, that's dyed purple. She's a worshiper of God. Now we don't know exactly what that meant, that because each of the trade guilds had their own deities in the Roman world, the Romans had, as the Greeks, they borrowed a lot of their religious customs from the Greeks, multiplicity, they were polytheistic. Okay, so they're worshiping lots of different deities. But she may have also heard of the God of the Hebrews, and she may have been thinking that. We just don't know. But she is sensitive to spiritual things. We can at least say that. She's a listener because she's there, and she's hearing this man come in, Paul, that she's never met before, and she's listening to what he's having to say. And she's a resident of Philippi. We learn later that she invites Paul, after she's converted to Christianity, she invites Paul and his companions to her house and with her family. Now, <clears throat> it's really important for us to understand, now Lydia is the first convert in Europe. Remember, Paul was headed 
north and then east, and God's spirit forbid him to go that way, focused him toward the west, and he crosses into Europe to Philippi, and the Lord opens her heart. Okay, there's something about our con conversion experience that God is doing a work within us. He's calling us unto himself. Prior to that time, we make an acknowledgement that, yeah, I really am a sinner, and I really do need a savior. That's a work of God, not of, not of works that any man can boast. This is something that, that God is doing. And she responded to the word of the Lord, and she and her household were baptized. That's how we know there was more of what her household meant, family members, other servants, we don't know. But she is a very established woman in this town. And then later she opens up her home to them, as we just mentioned. Now, here's part of the key that leads us to where we're going today from last week. She opens up her home to minister to them, and that ties us into Philippians 2, do not merely look out for your own interests, your personal interests, but have the interest of others also. And the conversion experience, with the conversion experience, that happens. We become Christ-like in that Christ came not to be ministered to, but to minister to us through his life and then by going to the cross, sacrificing his life for, for us. You think about the Good Samaritan, picking up that man, nurturing him, taking him and paying for his, um, the guy that was beaten up, you know, on the road, taking him and, and, and uh, paying his way at the end and saying, hey, if there's any other expenses, I'll take care of it. Okay, that's what happens when we become believers. <clears throat> so she believed in the message, but then she became the message. And by that, I mean she started a ministry of her own. Paul had come in as a minister sharing the gospel into this world of Rome, and then Lydia accepts that message, and then she becomes the message by beginning to minister to others. It transforms the value from being, of being a servant of a higher value than being served. Now, we pick up the story with a slave girl. Let's look to see what happens next to Paul. And it gets, this little gal gets him in a whole lot of trouble. So, <clears throat> following after, let's go down to, um, let's go down to verse 17. Acts chapter 16, verse 17. Following after this, Following after Paul and, uh, well, let's go up to 16. And it happened that as we were going to a place of prayer, and that could be down by the river again, a certain slave girl having the spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Okay, we've got a slave girl that's an economic boom to her masters, more than one. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bound servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. What's wrong with that? That's truth, isn't it? And she kept proclaiming that, and she keeps proclaiming that, and she keeps proclaiming that. Okay, and she continued doing this for many days, on and on and on, proclaiming this truth. 
But Paul was greatly annoyed. <laughs> so Paul Warren and I are talking about this a couple of times through the week, going, what, what's going on here? So I go back and start reading commentaries on this. And I actually read one commentary written by a woman minister in a church that basically said Paul was wrong in kicking this demon out because this girl is proclaiming truth. And we women have as much right to proclaim truth as the men do. And that was her stance. Well, a number of other people took her on on that, but the consensus of opinion that they didn't seem to have any better idea of what was going on here than Paul Warren and I did. Well, I'm, okay, so I go back, oh, well, maybe the key's in the text. But Paul was greatly annoyed. Maybe that's the answer. Have you ever been greatly annoyed by somebody that pesters you? When I, so as I was thinking about this, it, it reminded me that in 1969, part of that summer I had a job as a lifeguard. Okay, and I'm in my prime. So anyway, there's this, there's this little sixth, seventh, eighth grade girl that had a crush on me. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. And she, every day I would be on lifeguard duty, that little girl was following me around. Every day. She was a pest, you know? I mean, at first, okay, that's kind of cute, but after day after day after day, it really gets annoying for this little girl following me around. Well, maybe that's just it. Maybe Paul's just had it with his kid. Who knows? But he's also sensitive enough to know that this is not natural. There's something demonic going on here with this young lady. So he says, Paul being greatly annoyed, he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Gone. Bang. Okay, Paul has the ability to do that. So here's the problem. And I finally got to the point of, my, my best guesstimate about this, this is sort of a catalyst, like a chemical reaction to a proclamation. You remember back in organic chemistry, if those of us that had to struggle through that, you got a couple of substances and you put them together, nothing happened, but you put a catalyst right in the middle and bang. Everything happens, you, know, you get the reaction you're looking for or you, that you're not looking for. But in this case, this girl's got a gift that's profitable to her masters. And Paul takes it away. Now, most of us have to work for a living. And if somebody takes away your ability to make a living, that's not gonna set real well with you, is it? It's not gonna set well with any of us. So you can't really fault them for that. I mean, they're upset that Paul's destroying one of the ways they're making their livelihood. The masters are upset at the loss of the income and Paul's the blame. So the masters respond with action and accusation. Let's read on, see what happens. So when our masters saw, verse 19, that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged him into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrate, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Now, this whole thing is happening where Paul gets dragged is happening 
right up here, right in there. That's where they took him. That's where the magistrates were going to make a proclamation and determine what happens. So the, the accusation is this. They're throwing the city into confusion. Were they doing that? No, they weren't. They just exercised a spirit out of this girl. And they're proclaiming customs, which is not lawful to accept or observe being Romans. That's really key. You know, there, um, I saw a sign on a barn one time I really like. Going in this barn, it said, speak softly, speak slowly, and don't say too much. Probably every preacher ought to know that. This is one of those verses that speaks softly and doesn't say it says a whole bunch. They're proclaiming customs, which is not lawful to accept or observe being Romans. Now remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. It exemplifies everything that is Rome. And what these guys are accusing Paul and Silas of doing is proclaiming something that is not Roman. It's a cultural difference. We're proclaiming something that doesn't fit. Okay? Now, let's talk about Rome just for a second. Rome being Rome. It's polytheistic. Okay? And they built massive temples to their deities. This one, if I remember right, is um, this is the Temple of Neptune right here that was built to the god, of, uh, the god of the sea. And it was important to them to honor their gods. And they built temples all across the empire like this. Here's another one. This is a temple of Apollo. Okay, and again, in a different city. Massive amounts of structural and architecture in these beautiful temples in honor of their gods. That's their culture. And we have a god for our trade unions, we have a gods for our families, we have a gods for nature, we have temples to the unknown god, which Paul addresses at another time. So we have all these gods that are going on that we have to appease being Romans. It's our culture. And this is a violent culture. This is a culture, if you remember in Philippi, there's the arena that the Greeks built, but then the Romans modified it to have gladiator contests there. And they were bloody. And then they started off with animals fighting animals. And then they start the next in midday. That was in the morning. You could get a ticket for all day. And then in the, in the midday, they had gladiators fighting animals. And at the end of the day, they had gladiators fighting gladiators to the death. And this is what we do. This is our culture. It's violent. And that's a really important aspect because also we have Caesar. And Caesar is the man God. He is the way that points the way. He is called the firstborn son of God. He is called, and if you look at the scepter in his left hand, the root of power. 
He is the one that brings peace through that power. Because if we follow the laws of Rome, we live in peace, and that's our culture. See, and that's really significant that in Philippi, this is the culture that the merchants are accusing Paul of disrupting. It's a whole culture that we live in, and it's still prevalent it's still prevalent down to this day. So what happens? Paul walks into this culture representing a God that's content to live in a tent. Certainly later, there's Solomon's temple is built. And then still later, where's his dwelling place? Within our hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul walks in from the east, bearing God as a temple, and confronts this culture of violence that is in place because of power and violence. And the two come smack together. And Paul disrupts that. For we are the temple of the living God. And I believe as we look at this passage right in here, this is one of our key take-home things because we don't represent a God that has to have a church. We are the church. Okay? We are the temple of the living God. And so, the crowd rose up against them the magistrates tore the robes and ordered them beaten. And they're thrown into prison and they're put into stocks. For what? What did they do? Well, on the, one, on the, the surface, what they did was they exorcised the demon, Paul did. And they, they interrupted her masters of income. They deprived them of income. But at a deeper level, They went against the cultural norm. See, they hit the beachhead there and disrupted things. And they're put into stocks. So here's where we find Paul and Silas in a rat-infested prison. So what does that mean for us? I mean, it's an interesting story Let me suggest a couple of things. This is the Right to Life March in Washington, D.C. And we've all been made aware of the recent laws and proclamations that have been passed back east with respect to the unborn and how the abortion movement is moving forward to the point now of infanticide. And that's going to be challenged in the courts without question. But there is a real cultural split right now in our nation, isn't there? That would have never happened when I was growing up back in the 50s. Our culture has changed through time to where now we have a major division over women's rights or the rights of the unborn. 
our very constitution says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, we're guaranteed life. And yet there are many that says, no, no. A woman has a right to choose. And so why is abortion wrong? You know, well, because if you go back to the Ten Commandments, what does God say? Thou shall not, it doesn't say kill, it says thou shall not commit murder. It's a commandment, and murder is the taking of an innocent life, okay? And so a lot of people say you gotta keep the church and politics separate. That's an utter falsehood because everything in scripture has now become a political issue. Homosexuality, addressed in Romans chapter one. Abortion, addressed right from the Ten Commandments. Man is created in the image of God. And yet our culture is now saying we're a product of evolution. And if we don't like the product, we should just get rid of it. And that's what they're saying. We're gonna choose who we're gonna get rid of. That's what Nazi Germany was doing with the Holocaust and everything else that was going on. And so like Paul, there are those that believe in our country in this, that you've got to stand up for the principles of God. But it's more than that. Because to see what happens, like Paul and Silas, there are those that stand for the principles of God in our society now that are being imprisoned. And they are being imprisoned around the world. So what's going on? Well, here's the point. <clears throat> the proclamation of the gospel is a pathway to cultural conflict. We need to understand that. That's why in, in Ephesians, Paul writes, put on the full armor of God because he recognizes we are going into a spiritual conflict if we're going to represent Jesus Christ. For our struggle in Ephesians 6.12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces and wicked, wickedness in the heavenly places. This battle started with the Satan and God. <clears throat> and it has manifested itself through the sin that is in the world that indwells each one of us that we have been redeemed from by accepting Jesus Christ as our personal savior. But the battle's real, and there are casualties in the battle. If you're gonna stand for Christ, even in a gentle way, like in Paul's case of doing what is right, you may get thrown into prison. Or the young man that was just on the picture don't know what his crime was, but he was on a right to life march and he's being arrested. Some in this room have had that experience of standing for life, for what God proclaims is true and being arrested. Others of us in this room have participated in that march by working on the crosses down outside of Red Bluff. Others by working the crisis pregnancy center others by working at the rescue mission, others by counseling, others by speaking. 
Now, you remember way back at the beginning of this message and the one last week, we talked about Philippi being a Roman colony. It represents Rome. I want to suggest to us that because our citizenship is in heaven and we are here, we are a colony of the Most High God. That when people look at our lives and the way we conduct ourselves, they should see God. And that is no different, family, than what the Hebrews were called to. When God brought them out of Egypt, he wanted them, he gave them his law and his commandments that they might, to the world, represent who he was and who he is. And the calling has not changed. We as Gentiles have been grafted in, the scripture says, that we are now part of the family of God. We are called ambassadors to the Most High. An ambassador lives in a foreign land and represents his home nation. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we, as ambassadors, are like that colony of Philippi for the Romans, except we're ambassadors for God. So the question then becomes, what are we gonna do? And that's a question that each of us has to take before God because each of us has been created unique, with unique gifts, unique abilities, and a calling that is different because some of us work in agriculture, some of us work in teaching, some of us work here, there, everywhere. And so we're gonna interface with different people. But we don't go with the force of Caesar and bloodshed. We go instead with love with God's love. We don't go as an emperor, we go as servants. Because remember, we're not gonna force anybody into the kingdom of God. But if we go as ambassadors of Christ, he came to serve. And so our calling is to be servants. Our calling is to be ambassadors that are servants. So I think my challenge for myself and for all of us would be each day, Lord, as I go forth, give me those, bring me those who I can serve, that I might exemplify who you are. You know, the old adage, you know, share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. We need to use words, but we need to be quick, quick to hear and slow to speak. We need to understand who our audience is, who we are talking to, or rather, who we are listening to hear. Hear where their struggle is. Hear where their hearts are. And then share the love of God with them. So many are lost. They're like Rome. They've got all kinds of gods, hundreds of gods, some of them in false religions, some of them in work, some of them pleasure, 
whatever is their God in their life, it's a false God. And God has called us, and we are privileged to be the ambassadors that share the true and living God. And we're a colony. We're a colony family. You realize that? June 6, 1944. Some of you history guys and gals know that date. That is when the Allied forces invaded Normandy, Fortress Europe, under Nazi control. They hit the beach to establish a beachhead in a world of darkness. And if you look at what happened to Europe in, from 1937 through 44 through 45, it was destroyed. The cultures were destroyed under Nazism. But that day, young men put their lives on the line and hit the beach to bring freedom. Okay. The world's a mess like Europe was. It's a dying wreck. And God's called us to bring light and love and his grace. So put on the full armor of God, not just the helmet of salvation, but the rest of the armor, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, and go and let God lead you and be a servant for your king. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this letter to the Philippians and what happened to Paul and his example to us. And Father, as we go forth from this day and for every day, may we just be an example of your love and grace. And that may we be servants and may we exemplify who you are as a colony, an individual colony, as we establish a beachhead out there in the world. Father, if you choose to move this congregation to a new location, may that location be a light to this, this neighborhood in a special way. But it's not the location, Father. It's us. And so use us, I pray, each one of us, each day. In our Savior's name, we give you thanks for loving us and calling us into our citizenship in heaven. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.